0: You're listening to Caring Connections with Nicole Bruno, supported by HomeWatch caregivers, whose mission is to preserve dignity, protect independence, and provide peace of mind for their clients and loved ones by providing exceptional home care.
1: 97.9 FM, WCHL is pleased to present Caring Connections with Nicole Bruno. Nicole has over 15 years of experience as a geriatric social worker and administrator working in the long-term care industry to include skilled nursing care, Alzheimer's care, adult day care, and home care. She also worked as a family caregiver. In addition, Nicole co-founded a nonprofit at the Triangle that specializes in support for caregivers. Now, Caring Connections with Nicole Bruno.
0: Welcome to this edition of Care and Connections. Joining me today is Cooper Linton, Vice President of Marketing and Business Development for Transitions Life Care, founded as Hospice of Wake County. And we are going to be discussing accountable care organizations and how it impacts the consumer. Welcome, Cooper
2: thank you glad to be here Nicole
0: glad to have you here so this is a sort of a, a word we've been hearing in the media for a while that's been spinning around and around accountable care organizations and you know I think a lot of people just don't understand what that is and how it may impact them so I'm glad you were willing to to take that task today and hopefully educate us on what it is and how it works so let's start off with though just a baseline understanding of how health care is generally paid for under the traditional model the model we're under now
2: well the the overwhelming majority of healthcare right now is reimbursed on the idea that you get paid for everything you do. And it's not particularly outcome oriented. Mm-hmm. It's the more that you do, the more that you get paid for. And mm-hmm. um, We call that the fee for service model. Mm-hmm. And so you do certain services and in return, right. physicians or hospitals or rehab organizations get a fee in return for that service mm-hmm. with little regard to what type of outcome that service may create for the
0: the consumer. So the skin tag gets taken off, you bill the code for the skin tag. Absolutely. (laughs) Whatever it may be. You run an
2: MRI, you get to charge for the MRI, and then you get to charge for reading the MRI, Mm -hmm. and then you get to charge for meeting the patient to discuss the MRI results.
0: Interesting. Okay. Well, that, yep. So, that exactly is very segmented type care. So, what are the implications for consumers of this model? I mean, I think one thing that I've particularly noticed is that people don't communicate with each other very well across disciplines.
2: Well, it creates fragmentation. Mm -hmm. Uh, The fee-for-service model does not create an incentive for coordination of care. It does not create an incentive for teamwork or even the treatment of a person as a whole person. It tends to break people into diseases mm-hmm. or particular procedures as opposed to saying, how do we improve the wellness of this person as a whole?
0: Mm-hmm. So it, doesn't, it does not look at it from a more holistic view.
2: Generally, it does not. There are obvious exceptions to that and some practitioners work very diligently mm-hmm. to compensate for a fragmented system, but the system itself doesn't create the incentive for coordination. Right now, it does
0: So these would be examples of maybe practices that do that. Currently might be more of those integrative care models that you're hearing more of that have been starting the last few years where they're looking at you know the fitness center along with your primary care physician all in the same.
2: Absolutely. There's a lot of creative approaches to try and get everybody to play on the same page. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even some of what we're hearing about electronic health records mm-hmm. is tied to this because you have some providers that are still on paper charts and then lots of other providers that are using a broad array Mm -hmm. of electronic health records or electronic medical records, they're sometimes called. Unfortunately, these systems rarely talk to each other. Mm -hmm. One information system doesn't share or transmit data cleanly with another one. So even providers that are trying to work together struggle to do so just because of the cumbersome nature of sharing information.
0: Okay. So... I guess my question for you would be, what does that mean for quality? Is it measured? Is it determined? How do we figure that out in the way the care is currently provided?
2: Well, the care generally suffers. Mm -hmm. The quality of care generally suffers if people aren't able to work together as a team to enhance the care. Uh, The the analogy that I use now is that if I have a car Mm -hmm. and I take my car to the mechanic and I take one car to one mechanic, Mm -hmm. I get pretty good coordination of care because everything <laughs> happens in one shop. And yeah. I'm, all, I'm very price sensitive to it because I'm the one footing the bill. Right now, our healthcare system, to use that analogy, would mm. be like taking your car to four or five or six or even eight or 10 different mechanics. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I rarely see the bill. And when I do get a bill, I don't know what it's really for. Mm. I don't understand it. And the mechanics all don't talk to each other. Right. So my goal is to get my car back on the road and working for me as effectively as possible that goal may not be achieved when you have multiple people working on it without communication.
0: So that would be like taking your car to the brake shop and the muffler shop and then the transmission shop and then the tire shop. And then maybe you go back to your your primary <laughs> mechanic to say, is ever all the parts and pieces back on together the right way?
2: Right. And you yeah. try and get, the, the, yeah. you hopefully someone, your primary care physician, yeah. your primary mechanic tries yeah. to knit that together. But it's even more complicated because you can't even read each other's bill of work. So it, it gets very complicated to understand who did what.
0: Exactly. Makes a lot of sense. So getting back to the meat and potatoes, what exactly is an accountable care organization or what we'll refer to for the rest of the show as an ACO?
2: Well, what would, be, what would healthcare be without more access? <laughs> well, I know. So we need an <laughs> ACO. Yes, the The accountable care organization is, uh, if you is a shift on the continuum of value based purchasing of healthcare. And if you think to the left hand side of that continuum, is the fee for service, which is a very low risk model to the physician, mm-hmm. um, lower accountability, and less coordination of care. To the far right-hand side of that equation would be capitation, Mm -hmm. where the provider is given a flat sum of money and Mm -hmm. told to just manage it. And so the provider essentially becomes also an insurance company. In between those two extremes Mm -hmm. is the idea of having shared accountability and risk sharing and reward sharing for providers based on achieving certain outcomes. Mm-hmm. So there's some financial risk, but there's also financial incentives to coordinate care. And so ACOs come together as, as a group of providers. It could be physicians, mm-hmm. it could be hospitals, it could be a combination.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And they work together to create a continuum of care, for patients, and they have financial incentives and medical incentives to cooperate to enhance care.
0: So you talked about the continuum. Uh, just just to go back for the listening audience so everyone understands. So on the one side, you have the model that we currently have, the fee-for-service. And then the other side, you talked about the capitation model. Would that be similar to what the PACE programs operate in, where they're given a lump sum of money or the way hospice organizations have to operate? Or yeah, or is there an example that, that exists?
2: There are some actually capitated insurance models. Uh, you do not see them typically in North Carolina, uh, but there have been kind of pilots of capitation the problem with capitation is that there can be incentives that are not, are not always in the best interest of the patient.
0: Right, just to save costs. Absolutely. Yeah.
2: And so the idea is not to create an overabundance of financial incentives or, conversely, no financial incentives, mm-hmm. but to find a balance between managing health care, managing costs, where the patient becomes the recipient of the upside of those incentives, Great. where someone is incentivized to do the right thing, to get the right outcome, and to do so without creating uh, waste in the
0: system. So it'd be more of a win-win for everybody.
2: And thus, the sense of accountability.
0: So, we are going to take a quick break and dig deeper into the ACO world. And again, joining me today is Cooper Linton, Vice President of Marketing and Business Development for Transitions Life Care, and we will be right back.
1: Caring Connections with Nicole Bruno on 97.9 FM WCHL. Supported by HomeWatch Caregivers. Now, more of Caring Connections.
0: Welcome back. Joining me today is Cooper Linton, Vice President of Marketing and Business Development for Transitions Life Care. And we are talking about what an accountable care organization is and how it impacts the consumer. And now we're really going to dig in deep on the accountable uh, care organization. We've gotten sort of an idea of the types of Fee models that exist out there and and what exactly an ACO is. So, how did the ACOs actually come into being, Cooper?
2: Well, the idea of value based healthcare purchasing is not new. There have been models kicked around for uh, actually 20 or 30 years, Mm -hmm. but it was with the advent of the Affordable Care Act Mm -hmm. that the ACO was built into the Medicare and Medicaid system, primarily the Medicare system. There's also some private commercial folks that are commercial insurers mm-hmm. that are, have looked at this model and created ACOs because they recognize the upside potential both for care and in, and through better managed care, better managed cost of care. Mm-hmm.
0: So we won't be buying the $50,000 golden toilets anymore. Well, <laughs> we not. We hope not. <laughs>
2: But uh, the Affordable Care Act did create a mechanism for the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services uh-huh. to create the Accountable Care okay. Organizations.
0: Great. So, what are the incentive incentives for the ACOs? You talked about incentives earlier.
2: Well, th- there's a couple of different types of Accountable Care Organizations. The most common, and I think the one that's worthy of the most time today, is the Medicare Shared Savings Plans. Mm-hmm. And and that's where a group of providers comes together, again, typically a health system, hospital, groups of physicians. They come together voluntarily. They're not forced to do this. And they share in the management of patients. And what happens is Medicare makes statistical projections of what they think the cost of care for that group of patients would be.
0: With that diagnosis. With
2: that diagnosis. They they actually have the claims data on those particular patients. I mean, they they collect everything. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Ad (laughs) nauseum. So they have all that information. They make projections as to, to, to statistically what would it cost to provide that care. And if the managed care, the accountable care group is able to keep the costs below that figure, while hitting certain quality measures, it's not without an eye toward quality, they are able to share in approximately 50% of the savings that Medicare would recognize. Mm -hmm. The idea being value-based purchasing, you should get paid more when you do a better performance of managing the care and outcomes of a patient.
0: That makes sense. I wonder how it's going to work. <laughs> well, it's
2: interesting. We're getting some data back now. The first year of outcomes has really come mm-hmm. through. And while it's not overwhelming, there are very positive trends in it. About 25% of the accountable care organizations truly showed savings. Savings were they were financially rewarded. So there was, is it that at the early stage mm-hmm. that we're in now with accountable care organizations, The majority of accountable care organizations were able to kind of tread water with expected costs. 25% were able to save money, and only a very small number actually owed Medicare any funds.
0: So that's great to hear, but have they also collected data about patient satisfaction within the ACOs?
2: That is still early. And one of the challenges with this accountable care uh, organization model to your earlier point, mm-hmm. is that we're early on in this concept, mm-hmm. and we're still collecting data. The data is still being reported. It's still being cut up and looked at mm-hmm. to see, are people happy? Are they getting better care? Things look positive right now, but mm-hmm. we're a ways from having all the data.
0: And are there accountable care organizations in our area currently?
2: Absolutely, there are. There's approximately two dozen in North Carolina okay. uh, in general. And to put that in some perspective, there's about about two dozen in North Carolina. There's about 360-odd in the United States. Okay. And that's a number that's moving, and it's fairly fluid. Mm-hmm. As people become more comfortable with the idea of accountable care organizations, they're willing to invest in that.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so we talked a little bit about incentives. How will this impact my doctor?
2: Well, your doctor does not have to join an accountable care organization. But if they do so they're making some choices that they're going to work less independently and still, but work more with a team concept and look for evidence-based decision-making. And and the idea is more simply like this. We need to look at what actually produces a quality outcome Mm -hmm. for a patient, not just is this something that I could do and could bill for. Well, everything that we can do isn't necessarily something that we should do. And the evidence may not support running certain diagnostics. To use that earlier analogy, analogy, if I took my car in to the shop because I was having trouble getting it started, I don't necessarily need to have my tire pressure checked. Now, that's an inexpensive thing, mm-hmm. but we can run a tire pressure check, and we can check on the muffler, and we can check on the paint, and we can check all those things. We can, but do they actually improve the outcome of the car starting? We can run lots of tests, we can run lots of diagnostics, but are we actually improving patient care? And if the answer is no, then your physician's gonna be incentive, incentivized to really rein in and look at what improves your care
0: mm-hmm.
2: and work with other partners
0: mm-hmm. to get that done. But then as devil's advocate, if you brought that same car to the shop and you hadn't brought the car to the shop in a few years to have any general maintenance done, would the doctors now not be incentivized to do those general maintenance checks to make sure that the car was still okay? <laughs> well, I think that
2: puts the real emphasis back on preventive care, Nicole. Yeah. I think it's a great yeah. point. There are things we need to be doing to get checkups. Mm-hmm. It's cheaper to maintain the human right. body mm-hmm. than it is to wait until there's a crisis mm-hmm. and try and repair it. And sure. it's a lot cheaper to go in and have that primary care work done. And and so under this model, the physicians are still paid to do preventive care. In fact, they're strongly incentivized Mm -hmm. to do preventive care for patients to go in and get checked on early because Mm -hmm. it is in their best interest from a health perspective and it's in their best best interest of Medicare financially.
0: Okay. So... How, did, how is this going to affect the consumer? You know, say I find out suddenly, I don't even know if I'd get a letter, but say I just found out some way that my physician was part of an ACO now.
2: Well, you, you actually would get a letter.
0: Okay, well, that's good uh, to and, know. And
2: I can say this as, a, as, as both someone in the industry, but a loved one of mine mm-hmm. is uh, in an ACO, okay. <laughs> is in a Medicare shared savings uh, ACO and got their letter that said that they were in it. From their perspective, it may not change a whole lot f- from the consumer perspective. You have, you walk in and your physician is still your physician, mm-hmm. but the physician is now having to think as part of a larger team mm-hmm. of people. So that physician may start to work with you in a different way and try and make referrals to people who can help you quickly.
0: Well, I'd like to touch on that again after the break as well. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back.
1: Caring Connections with Nicole Bruno on 97.9 FM WCHL. Supported by Home Watch Caregivers. Now, more of caring connection.
0: Welcome back. Joining me today is Cooper Linton, the Vice President of Marketing and Business Development for Transitions Life Care. And we are talking about the role of an ACO and how it can potentially impact a consumer or not. So we just started diving into that a little bit, Cooper, on how this may or may not affect the consumer. And I know that you wanted to add an additional point to that issue. Go ahead.
2: Well, the accountable care organizations are not structured to ration or limit care. That's not the purpose of them. The purpose of them is actually to enhance cooperation and coordination among providers, to encourage the sharing of information including electronic use of the health records, and there are incentives for that as well. So it's still a fee-for-service model where the patient has the option to get additional services, and they can find another provider if they want to. Uh, So so you're
0: not in forever. You're not in forever, (laughs) and the
2: physician is not being dictated to as to what they can or can't order, or the hospital being dictated to as to what they can or can't do for you. They are trying to look holistically and say, really, are we making a difference? Are we cooperating? Are we sharing information? And can we take some of the burden off the patient, from the patient trying to knit together this fragmented mm-hmm. system, sure. and take on that burden ourselves as healthcare
0: providers? So you're saying that this basically will not impact the patient patient's choices. No,
2: I don't think the patient's choices are negatively impacted. The idea is to make the consumer experience, frankly, a little easier by having the providers work together. When you sit down and go to a dinner party and, and talk mm-hmm. to folks about their experience in the healthcare system, and one of the primary <laughs> yeah. trends that you hear in the dialogue is about fragmentation and the frustration and the exasperation sure. that families have through mm-hmm. that experience. This has the potential to improve the coordination among providers and take some of that burden off of the patient and family.
0: Well, that sounds like it's a it's a great model, and hopefully, it'll last. We hope. To too. Again, <laughs> I have to put new, all this work into this. <laughs> the new data
2: is promising, and all the providers are coming to the table with their parts. And what it requires is us as medical providers to become cooperative with each other and a little less territorial about this is my area and that's Mm -hmm. your area, and more about how do we work together to help this patient get the best possible outcome.
0: So you were talking a little bit earlier about financial incentives or disincentives if you don't file things a certain way for the providers. So who actually owns an ACO?
2: The ACO is owned by the people who form it. So it is usually the hospital health systems or providers. The beneficiaries of that are the folks that are enrolled in the ACO. And that's based on who is their primary care provider and who gives them the most care. So if their primary care provider and most of their care is run through the members of the ACO, they tend to get looped into it on Medicare. That's where you get the letter from your doctor. Mm-hmm. If it's a commercial insurance, then that's a little more straightforward. You're really the consumer of both the insurance plan and the care from the physician. So you would know whether you're part of the ACO.
0: So can anybody form an ACO?
2: Not just anybody. There are certain restrictions. uh, The Affordable Care Act defined, uh, particularly for Medicare, who can be be a part of one, but more relevantly, who has the ability to own one. And it requires, Mm -hmm. the key element of that is that you have the capacity to manage the risk related to outcomes.
0: Interesting. Well, this has been a wealth of information, and I'm sure many of you listening today have been wondering what that little ACO ACO word is that we keep, your acronym is that we keep hearing over and over in mass media. So I really appreciate the time that you took out with us today, Cooper. I think this is going to be a wealth of information to our listening audience. And as always, you may email your caring questions to caring at 1360wchl.com. Thank you so much, and have a great day. The purpose of Caring Connections is to educate listeners to help improve the quality of life for families, for professional caregivers, as well as those people affected with Alzheimer's disease.
1: Caring Connections with Nicole Bruno is supported by HomeWatch Caregivers. You can hear this and any other program of Caring Connections on WCHL's website, chapelborough.com. Be sure to email questions to caring at 1360wchl.com. Caring Connections is a presentation of 97.9 FM, WCHL, Chapel Hill Carborough's news, talk, and Tar Heel station.